Okay, good to see everybody out and uh, happy for your presence and invite you to get your Bibles and follow along as we study from the scriptures. As you see, we're going to talk about tulip. You think, well, we're talking about flowers or what? I guess we could make a lesson about flowers. They certainly represent the wisdom of God, of his handiwork, of his creative ability. They are absolutely beautiful. There's a beautiful, beautiful spring flower. But actually, what we're going to talk about is uh, uh, tulip is, is an acronym for the major tenets of Calvinism. And uh, anyway, Luke was, uh, he, he called me the other day, he said, uh, why, why, why are you preaching on that? And I said, I guess what, what happened when I was out in Iowa, I was talking with Ross, he, he said they have several uh, people out there that teach Calvinism a lot. And anyway, it got me thinking, and uh, uh, we don't have a whole lot of true all points of Calvinism doctrine that's taught in our area, but there are some that teach that, and certainly there are points that people accept of, of the uh, Calvinistic doctrines. And, uh, but anyway, it's well worth our, our time to take, uh, take a look at that. It's like the exhortation of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 about testing the spirits. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at is sort of testing this doctrine. And TULIP is sort of an acronym. An acronym is like MAD, Mothers Against drive, Drunk Driving, or AIDS, the Acquired Immunity Deficiency Syndrome, or President AMLO of Mexico, which is kind of an acronym of his uh, Andres, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Uh, sort of the first letters of, of the four names that he has, and so he's President Amlo. And so it is with Tulip. And that, these are the five major points of Calvinism as an acronym, Tulip. And let's just kind of talk about each of those just briefly of just an overview of what uh, Calvinism is. The T stands for Total Hereditary Depravity. And what they say is that man, because Adam and Eve fell in sin and transgression, that we inherit sin. Sometimes you hear people use the, uh, the term, the doctrine of original sin. That is, that we're all tainted with sin because uh, we bear the consequence and we inherit the sin of Adam and Eve and that's been passed on to us. And, and so babies, they're just born just totally depraved and they're so darkened they couldn't understand God's will. They couldn't make, the, make any kind of free choices. They're no longer free because they're totally, completely darkened and depraved and and so, therefore, you're going to have to have some irresistible grace, and we'll get to that in just a second. And since God is going to have to send the Holy Spirit and this irresistible grace come upon you, well, then God would have to choose who that's going to come upon. Since man can't choose, we, 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 we're totally incapable of making any kind of choice about the gospel, about Christ, because we're totally depraved. So therefore, you have unconditional election. That, that, that is, God makes the decision. This person is going to be saved. This person is going to be saved. Lost, 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 saved, lost, lost. And God made all these choices before the world began. And it's unconditional because it's nothing that we do anything about it because we can't make any choices because we're so totally, uh, absolutely depraved. We couldn't make the, uh, obey the gospel if we wanted to and receive the, uh, the message of the gospel. And so God God makes the unconditional choices of those that are saved and those that will be lost. Uh, well, since, since only, there's only some that are going to be saved because God made that choice, then Jesus really only died for the ones that will be saved. 
and so the doctrine of limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everybody. He died only for the elect. That is, for those that God predetermined, the one, the individuals that are going to be saved, that individually he selected these certain ones that would be saved. Everybody else, they're going to be lost, and there's nothing they can do about that. And if God makes the choice that you're going to be saved, what's going to happen is this irresistible grace is going to come upon you because God selected you. And you, you can't overcome God. God's stronger than everybody. And so the Holy Spirit will just swoop down upon you and you'll be converted and you'll be enlightened. And uh, anyway, you come to this irresistible grace because God chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved. And therefore, you really don't have anything to do with it. God's irresistible grace, the Holy Spirit is just going to come upon you and you will be, uh, of course, become a follower of Jesus. Well, if God chose you because you're so darkened that you couldn't make any choices about the matter, and he made this choice and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and Jesus only died for you, well, if God chose you to be saved, well, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to undo that. And so the perseverance of the saints. That is, uh, some call it once saved, always saved, that God chose you to be saved, you will be saved, and you make no choice in the matter, you have no uh, decisions and choices in this matter, God just swoops upon you with this irresistible grace, because God made this election that you would be saved, and you'll be lost, and you can't do anything about it, and you can't change God's mind, because God is the one that is the uh, sovereign God, and He makes all the choices, and that, and really when you look at it, uh, it all logically all fits together. Yeah, very logically fits together. Pro problem is, it's not in harmony with God's will, but it logically, it, it all fits together as a, a nice unit of doctrine and teaching. It all works together. Assuming, for me, is like if you start with the first point, which that one's wrong, and then really all the other part, parts are wrong. You could use the illustration. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 5. 5 times 6 equals 30. 30 minus 10 is 20, and 20 times 2 is 40. Isn't that right? Isn't that, isn't that the right answer? 2 times 40, that, that is 40, right? Is that, is that, is that the right, correct, correct, correct answer? Yeah? Well, no, wait a minute. Whoa, he started out wrong. 2 plus 2 don't equal 5. You see, you, in that long mathematical problem, you started out wrong, and therefore it makes everything else wrong, incorrect, because you started out incorrect. And that's what I see when I look at TULIP, the doctrines or the Institute of the Christian Religion. That was the title of the book, or the, actually became a series of books that was written back in 1530 by a fellow named John Calvin, that he starts out with the wrong ideal of total hereditary depravity. Have all sinned and come short of the glory of God? Yep, the Bible teaches that. We've all sinned. But the Bible teaches and shows that uh, really we don't inherit sin. And we're not born totally depraved sinners. That, that's what's taught. In fact, there are several denominations that use that phrase, total uh, depravity. First off, when I think about this idea of doctrine of inherited sin, question in my mind, well, what about Jesus? I mean, he, he was born a woman. Yeah, he, he didn't have a physical father, but he had a physical mother. Her name was uh, Mary, and that's what Paul says there in the book of Galatians, chapter four and verse four. But when the fullness of time has come, well, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Well, I mean, if if we inherit sin from 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 our parents, well, why didn't Jesus inherit sin? 
and there are various groups that hold to this doctrine of inherited sin, and uh, they come up with various doctrines to somehow try to get around that. Jesus was made of a woman. Why didn't he inherit sin? No, nobody is able to answer that. They, they, they come up with some other ridiculous doctrines or just make up doctrines to try to get around it, but you see the consequence of, the, of this idea. If we inherit sin from our parents, from our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam, and, and, of course, Eve, she was also involved because they, of course, the, uh, uh, Eve is the mother of all the living. Why, why didn't Jesus inherit sin? See, it presents a quagmire. And then that passage there in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says, For I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived or was made alive or sprang to life, various version says, and I died. What's his point there? There was a time before the law came, that is, of an age of accountability. There was no uh, moral awareness of right and wrong, uh, of innocence. But when the commandment came, that is, you came to the age of accountability to know the difference between right and wrong, sin springs to life and I die. Now, that, that happens to all people, that, that as we reach the age of accountability, we choose to do the wrong, just like Adam and Eve chose to do wrong. They, they, were, they were created good, unless you want to say they were created evil, and nobody really wants to take that position either. And then the passage that really uh, just uh, answers this whole idea of inheriting sin, that it's passed on from Adam and Eve all the way down through all generations. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. If we inherit sin, the son does bear the iniquity of the father. But Ezekiel says the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. We don't bear the iniquity of the father. We don't bear the iniquity of the grandfather. We don't bear the iniquity of the great-grandfather. We don't bear, bear the iniquity of the great-grandfather all the way back, all the way to Adam and Eve. If you don't bear from your father, you don't bear from even before that. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. If your child goes out and becomes a mass murderer, that doesn't make the parents guilty of sin. And so uh, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. We don't inherit sin, nor do we inherit righteousness either. So the first point of total hereditary depravity is not correct. And so if you start off wrong, it's like we're talking about that math problem, which everything else becomes wrong. Well, what, what about this unconditional election? Well, the Bible talks about predestination and election and those types of phrases. But people miss that point. Look there in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul talks about this ideal predestination. According as he has chosen us in, uh, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame uh, before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of the children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, God did predestinate it, but he didn't predestinate each individual. He predestinated the plan of redemption. He predestinated the man, Jesus, who would die on the cross. He predestinated the plan, that is, the gospel message. And he predestinated the clan, that is, the church the, of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. And so God did predestinate this redemption that would be in Christ Jesus because Jesus' blood would flow backward there to, uh, to help the people in the Old Testament that were faithful to God and actually forgive their sins. And it would flow forward to the end of time and uh, would be made available to all. 
to the praise and glory of his grace, which he has made, uh, made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and imprudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. What God predestinated was that in Christ Jesus that we would be saved, that we should be the first, uh, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted after that you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of the inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So what happens that he predestinated the way that we would be saved in Christ Jesus. That was unconditional. It's not like we sat down and God said and conferred with people. No. no, God said this is the way people would be saved in Christ Jesus, that Jesus' blood would pay the actual debt of sin, and he, uh, he offers his redemption to those who, who walk by faith, who have faith, and walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, as you see throughout the scriptures. And so we got Mark 16, Jesus says, go into all the world, and what? Preach the gospel to every creature. Well, why do you preach to every creature? Well, because people then can make the choice whether to accept it or not accept it. God wants us to be saved. And if you use the idea of election, well, how does elections work? Well, people vote for this fellow, and somebody votes for this fellow, and they count up the votes, and whoever gets the most votes is the one that wins. Well, the election is God cast a vote, I want you to be saved, and the devil, I want you to be lost. And then we cast the deciding vote, whether we're going to cast our lots with God or we're going to cast our lots with the devil, and that decides the election, whether we go with God or we go with the devil. See, we cast the deciding vote. And so that's what God predestinated. There in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that, him, him that hears say, Come, and let him that's thirsty come, and whosoever will. You see, we, accept, we exercise our will whether we want to accept this or reject this. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus came and he died for everybody. And it is offered because the gospel is being preached. The good news is preached. What is the good news? Salvation in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That we can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's the good news. That's the message that is proclaimed. It's proclaimed to every creature. And then if we exercise our will to say, yeah, that, you know, that makes sense. I feel guilty and I feel lost and I feel undone. I feel separated from God. Well, rightly so because that's what sin does. It separates us from God. And we should feel guilty because we choose to do things that are bad and wrong. But in Christ Jesus, we can choose to accept his scheme of redemption, his offer of forgiveness. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. So that's the invitation of the Lord. And that's what we see. The spirit and the bride say, come. And when we hear the call to come, do we believe it? Or we want to accept it? We want to step out on it? And we can do that in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let's notice about this limited atonement. A lot of people are really uncomfortable about that. that that's one of the points of, 
of Calvinism that people are really uncomfortable. That just, that, there's just too many verses that just says otherwise. There in the book of 1 John, uh, chapter, <clears throat> 1 John chapter 2 there, verses 1 and 2. Uh, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If any man have a, uh, have, uh, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation. Propitiation just means he's the atoning sacrifice. And he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. This, this idea of limited atonement is like, ah, no, that don't sound right. I mean, this... One of the most famous verses that you see splashed everywhere. I used to see it all the time in sporting events. People open sign. John 3.16, you know. John 3.16, a lot of people commit it to memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, not just the limited, not just the elect. He so loved the world and sent his son that we might be forgiven. There in John chapter 1 and verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming on him and said, what? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is the hope. Jesus died for everybody. Is everybody going to be saved? No. The invitation is extended. God, God extends the invitation that you can enjoy the forgiveness that's in Christ Jesus. You can be washed by the blood of Christ. You can enjoy this forgiveness. You can become a part of God's elect. You can be part of this predestinated class of people by believing and accepting the gospel message and God will bring you into this family and therefore you will be part of the elect when you make the decision to say, yeah, I'm going with God. This makes sense. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus is the, is the answer to the problem of sin. It's like one of the, uh, the Greek uh, writers of the first century said, well, the gods may forgive, but I don't see how. When we learn the message of Jesus and him dying on the cross, being a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, yeah, that, well, that's how, the God, that's how God can forgive sin is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so it all makes sense. And so this idea of limited atonement, that's not right either. And then this, this point of irresistible grace. Well, that, that's not true either. The Holy Spirit is compelling us the message is a compelling message. The Holy Spirit wants to work in our hearts and lives. That is through his word. That's where the power is. Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, as we said in Bible class, for it is the power of God unto salvation. God's power is in the gospel. And that's what needs to be proclaimed. But we, we can resist God's power. Notice there in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen's preaching, he tells the Jews, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, how, how, did, how did they and the fathers of the Jews, how did the ancestries of the Jews resist the Holy Spirit? He explains it, verse 52. Which of your prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them who have showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You see, they resisted the Holy Spirit. They resisted the Holy Spirit-inspired word. That is the prophets. 
The prophets are the one, they're the mouthpieces of God, and they spake the word of God. They spake the message of God. And when the prophets speak the word of God, and the Bible, of course, which is given by inspiration, it is the inspired message of God. And when this message is proclaimed, when we read it, we hear it, and we hear what God has to say, what the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to record, and when people are preaching the inspired word today, we, we, we can resist it just like the Jews did. We can resist the writings of the scriptures. I mean, it ha it's compelling. I mean, you look at it, it's like, whoa, it, it's really compelling. I mean, you think about uh, Felix there in, in Acts 17. Well, you know, he, he trembled. He, he trembled at what Paul was preaching about uh, righteousness and judgment to come, righteousness and uh, judgment to come and, and, and those things there in Acts chapter 24. And he reasoned a righteousness, temperance. Yeah, that's, that's the word, temperance, self-control, and judgment. And it says, Felix trembled. So it, it was moving in his heart, but he resisted and he didn't obey. And he said, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll have a convenient time. You know, maybe, maybe. And he heard Paul even more time, but he still didn't obey as far as we know. Maybe, maybe he did later on. But it's possible. It's like, yeah, I know I need to. Yeah, I need to accept what God says. But, you know, we can resist the Holy Spirit. There in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 30, uh, Paul says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Well, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? That is when we resist what the Holy Spirit revealed in his word. We look at some teaching and it's like, ah, like, you know, we kind of buck up against it and, and we're trying to push against it and we just don't want to receive it. And uh, Well, let's talk about something else and we shove it out of our mind and we resist. Yeah, that's how we resist the Holy Spirit. I mean, God's pretty strong. The Holy Spirit is part of the eternal Godhead. I mean, he could make you do something, but that's, that's not God. I mean, he could, he could have stopped Eve and said, whoa, stop right there. You, you can't eat that. I told you not to eat. I'm not going to let you eat the forbidden fruit. But he didn't do that. And he could have stopped Adam. No, oh, Adam, no, no, don't listen to your wife. You can't do that. I'm not going to let you do that. But he didn't do that either. Just like he doesn't let us, uh, you know, we, we're thinking about that we're going we're gonna to go out and get drunk. He's he not going to stop us. Uh, you know, we're going to use bad language and cuss somebody out. Well, he's not going to stop us doing that. Or somebody's going to go out and, and, and uh, do some maniacal deed as a mass murder. He, he doesn't stop things like that. He could, but he doesn't. Why? Because we're creatures of choice. And sometimes people make bad choices. That, that, that's, for, that's for sure the world that we live in. So we can resist the Holy Spirit. There, there is no irresistible grace that we just couldn't stop it if we wanted to. No, that, that's not true. We can resist the Holy Spirit. And then notice there in Acts chapter uh, 26, where Paul talks about where the Lord appeared to him and uh, anyway told him that, you know, appeared to him that he's going to be able to be a witness and he's going to go uh, preach in his name and Paul recognized him, etc. He says there in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Well, what's implied when he says I was not disobedient? He could have been disobedient. Paul could have rejected it. I mean, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, it was, he saw it in, in living color. He saw it in person. I mean, the Lord appeared to him. He was of the mind to serve God. He just didn't think Jesus was uh, really, uh, was the real Messiah. But then he learned different. 
he did have the desire to serve God and to, uh, to do God's will and, and to live in good conscience. And, you know, so he was not disobedient, but it's implied that he could have been disobedient because God didn't override his will, but he chose to accept it. He could chose to be disobedient, but he didn't. So this irresistible grace, that, that, that point, that's not correct either. And then the perseverance of the saints. There's another one that's very popular in, in the, our area, perseverance of the saints, uh, the, the, the eternal security of the believer sometimes called, or once saved, always saved. Well, let's talk about that one. Is that so? Well, we've already seen the first, part, first four points are not so. We're not born totally deprived that we could never make a choice and come to an understanding and make any choice about the gospel. That, that's not true because we don't inherit sin, the sin of Adam. We're not totally depraved. We can be depraved by just keep, keep sinning and, and doing lots of wicked things. Uh, uh, that's possible, but it, it's not that we're totally born that way. And the unconditional election, that's not true because Jesus died for everybody. The limited atonement, that's not true either because, well, Jesus died for everybody. That everybody has the opportunity to be saved. It's not irresistible. It's given. It's offered. It's proclaimed. But he doesn't twist people and say, okay, come on, you're, you're going you, you, you're to obey the gospel. It doesn't work that way. We do it of our own free will. And we make the choice to become a child of God, to accept the plan of God, to become part of God's elect. And we can choose to quit following God also. Notice there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 there, notice there in verse 27, where Paul talks about, I've been out preaching all over the, all over the, the world there. I mean, Paul, the many journeys, the many places that he preached. But he says, but I roughly treat my body or buffet my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others. Paul preached the gospel to lots of people. Paul recognized that, you know, I've got to bring my body also in subjection. I've got, got to obey this message also for myself. Uh, I've got to do the will of God. He says, if, if uh, you know, I reject this message uh, and I don't follow it, he says, I myself should be disqualified or eliminated. In the race of life, Paul felt that he could be eliminated. He could be disqualified. He could be a reprobate. He could be rejected because we can be rejected. We can get in the race. We can get in the race of life, running the race with Christ and, and serving him. But then we can be disqualified by not living the life. That's why we have exhortations like, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. Notice there in the book of Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, people say, well, once you're in the grace, you're always in the grace. Well, that's not true. In Galatians chapter 5, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. See, we could get wrapped up in this yoke of bondage by becoming uh, legalist and, and becoming, you know, uh, being Judaized and, and go back to these Old Testament laws and back into bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. That is, you count as a condition of salvation. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Here's another consequence. If you're going to go back and take part of the law, you, you're obligated to do all the law. You're debtor to do the whole law. Now, 
can't just be selective about it. If you're going to do part, you're obligated to do all of it. And then notice verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are that are justified by the law. What does he say? You are fallen from grace. Now, in the perseverance of the saints, it's like, well, once you're in grace, you're always in grace. But that's not true. Because here are some people that were Christian. They were in the grace of God, but they were listening to the Judaizers, and they were following this erroneous ideal. And Paul said, you have fallen from grace. You can't fall from something that you've never been in. Can you? Well, no. They were in the grace of God, but because of bad choices, because we are creatures of choices, and following after the Judaizers, they had fallen from grace. And then notice there in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, in verses 12 and 13, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the writer says, Take heed, brethren, that is, you be on guard, you pay attention, lest there be in any, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. See, they were connected with God in obeying the gospel, becoming followers of Jesus Christ, becoming Christians, becoming uh, 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 disciples of Christ. And now this evil heart of unbelief would come in and it would cause them to separate and depart from the living God. And so the exhortation is, verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. By being deceived and following sin and transgression and turning from and not listening to Jesus, well, then we become hardened and we are separated from God. People want to talk about the, uh, sometimes call this the doctrine of the security of the believer. Uh, really, that, that's not, that, the, the, the statement would be correct. Yeah, there, there is the security of the believer. There in John chapter 10, this is the verse that is probably the most uh, famous verse used. But notice there in John chapter 10, verse 26, he says, But you believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. So Christ's followers, they, they, they know God. They hear the voice of God. They listen to God. They hear and they know and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of, my, uh, out of my hand. My father who gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my, my father's hand. I and my father are one. So the security of the believer, yes, that's correct. But here's the question. Can we quit hearing the voice of the Son of God? Can we quit believing in the Son of God? Can we lose our faith? Can we quit following the Son of God? And they answer, well, yeah, there are plenty of passages. You look in First and Second Timothy, you can make shipwreck of the faith. You can deny the faith. You, you can be worse than an infidel. And, and all those other verses that talk about what we do to the faith, of turning from the faith, and err from the faith, and, and lose our faith, etc. The security of the believer, okay, that would be correct as long as you stay a believer. But if we quit believing and we quit hearing and we quit following, do you read anything there in John chapter 10 that they're going to be okay? No, there's nothing there. It's those that hear and believe and follow. That's the security. Yeah, the security of the believer. 
the security of the here, the security of the followers of Jesus. Yeah, there is security for the true and faithful. The security of the believer. No problem with that. But what they want to say is that, well, you can get into unbelief and you can quit following and you can quit listening to Jesus. And, and it's, no, that, that's, not, now that's not taught in this passage. And all these other verses that we looked at, yeah, there is no perseverance of the saints. If we persevere as saints, as believers, yeah, there is comfort for the faithful. What you've got to find is where does it say that if you become unfaithful, you quit believing, you quit following, you quit hearing, that, hey, it's all going to work out. It does, there's nothing that says that. In fact, it warns against that. That's what we saw there in Hebrews chapter 3, that the evil heart of unbelief, unbelief enters in. Here you are a believer, but then unbelief enters in, and it calls you to depart from the living God. That's the problem. And that's not promised that, well, they'll be saved anyway, because that's not what the passage says. Yeah, TULIP, the major tenets of Calvinism. You examine this doctrine in light of the scriptures, like, ah, I just can't go along with it. It's not in harmony with God's will. And we just need to be in harmony with God's will and be a student of Jesus. Yeah, there is the invitation, the plan of salvation. And the plan of salvation is that the gospel is to be preached to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Believe on the Lord. That's what the jailer was told. To repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We are to confess Jesus before men just like the eunuch did and to be baptized for the remission of sins. These are steps that, that when we hear this message, that yeah, we're in sin. Yeah, we've done wrong. We know we're guilty. We know that we're, we're condemned. But the gospel, the good news is we can be saved in Christ Jesus. And we have to exercise our will. We have to use our mind. We have to use our thinking. We have to do a little learning. We have to be taught. And then we accept and say, yeah, that, that's it. I'm, I'm going to accept that. And we step out in faith and obedience. We become a Christian. We're exhorted to grow and be faithful. First Peter 2 and verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sin Cereal, milk of the word that you make grow the eye. Just like we see all these babies, you know, they come into the world and they're growing and they're growing. And it's normal and so it is spiritually that we grow. And if we do err, we've got that second law of pardon as we repent and pray God. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse, 10, verse 9 there. The invitation is open. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. That's what God ordained. That's what God predestinated, salvation in Christ Jesus. And each one has the power of volition, the power of choice. That you can make the choice that, yeah, that's what I want to accept. I want to accept God's truth and become his father. And if you're subject to the invitation and you need to respond in any way, you come and let us know why together as we sing number 285. <clears throat>